1: Hello, we should be in our on our city air.
2: limits, and it's the, um, it's the first Wednesday of the month. It's the first day of summer, in fact. And uh, I just rode to Edinburgh Gardens, hoping, hoping by now the jacarandas there might be out, but they weren't. Because uh, I think once they come out, I really feel summer has arrived. Um, but um, anyway, I'm Kevin Healy, and um, Zeb Peaks here. Karina's floating around somewhere. Zeb, quite hassled, rushed into the studio madly. Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, my tram was a bit late today, but uh-huh. I, I got here.
2: Well, um, um, that's no excuse, okay? Yeah, uh, <laughs> but anyway, okay, what well, you are here? Uh, and Karina um, and Seven, in fact, is pressing all the buttons for us, so that's uh, that's a very important job. And on today's program, it's normal transport day, of course. With uh, if, if Melbourne in, transport in Melbourne, it will be called normal. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's our transport day, and our regular transport commentator John McPherson will be on in the second half of the program and in the first half we're going to be talking to Debbie Corrubbers. We spoke to Debbie a year or more ago now at the beginning of the environment um, process into that um, mineral sands mine in East Gippsland that we that was going to cause incredible damage and the second time in a year incredibly a a panel has recommended against a proposal and uh, it was knocked back last week. The Minister Announced that it wasn't—it was going to be knocked back. So it's a great victory for that community. They've been fighting for not just a year, but about seven years against this, these sort of issues. So, and they take a lot out of communities because of the money you've got to spend, the energy you've got to put into it against people who are bottomless. Pockets for money and, and best lawyers, etc. So, so, we're talking to Debbie about that. It's a success story for once on city limits, which is uh, not bad, is
1: that? Yeah, although, of course, you hate them. So, we'll, we'll, right. have, to, I mean, we'll have to first give some depressing news, I think. We're
2: swallowing our pride. Yeah. Well, the first good news is I'm going to pour you a cup of tea. Here we go.
1: Oh. So much good yeah. news this morning. That's
2: right, there we are, that's one, that's, that's one cup of tea, that's two over there, I'm not sure how close to the mic, it's will spare away from the mic, perhaps you can hear it all, but anyway, there we go, that's three cups, because Carina will be back shortly, Yeah. and I'll pass perhaps. yours over, here we go, this is the usual bit of silence as we pass over yes. the cups. These days we do have screens in the studio that uh, keep us apart from each other, yes. which is fair up in the current climate.
1: Silence or well, meet thunder I so. as I bump into my microphone. Exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, a couple of items this week I thought worth uh, just talking about before we do go to Debbie Carubba's, and um, one of them is that the coal industry is uh, is pretty upset. Now, I want you to see if there, you can pick out some sort of, uh, some sort of irony in all of this, uh, Zeb, because... Um, Exports of Australian thermal coal could face yet more disruption after floodwaters affected access for mines in New South Wales' prime production regions over the weekend. This was last weekend. Mm-hmm. The Bureau of Meteorology described the Namoi flooding near Narrabri, where Whitehaven's second-best mine is located as major. It goes on to say the extent of disruption to the New South Wales coal industry after a week of heavy rain is expected to become clearer on Monday. That was... This week, but the downpour has added to a list of factors that have disrupted supply over the past year and contributed to record prices for the commodity. Wild weather in November 2020 blew a shiploader off its rails at the Newcastle port that services the NSW coal fields, and the incident reduced exports capacity by several months. Another bout of wild weather severed the railway link between Newcastle and the coal mines in March, preventing coal from reaching the port. The risk of cyclones will also hang over the, ma- the coking coal market for the next few months, next five months, given cyclone-prone North Queensland is the world's biggest exporter of the steel-making ingredient. Now, <laughs> coal complaining that it, it's been held up because of mad wild weather conditions. Can you see a certain irony there at all? Oh, it-
1: Maybe just, yeah. Coal mining won't stop for climate change, but climate change will stop coal mining. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs>
2: Yes, so um, there you are. And um, I just thought that was incredibly ironical, but Coles complaining about being held up by bad weather and, and extreme weather conditions, so I thought, my God. Um, anyway, the but last week we also mentioned that in, as response to Glasgow, um, uh, we had the announcement of the Scarborough Field by Woodside uh, of the biggest gas project in Australia. And they managed to say, and it's extraordinary, isn't it? But they managed to say that opening the biggest gas project in Australia will help the transition away from fossil fuel, presumably Mm. fossil fuel, like, say, for instance, gas. um, Um, (laughs) Yeah. And the the awful part of that is that and was in, in the paper last Wednesday I didn't I had it in my bag and didn't see it till I got out of the studio, but the front page of last Wednesday's Financial Review Labour gas project fits Greens plan a uh, Green plans not Greens plan Green plans, put the plural in the right word Kevy, and um, the Labour Party spokesperson a woman called Madeleine King agrees with the company and the government that this is part of a transition away way to help us with climate change I mean it's extraordinary. I, Anyway.
1: Yeah.
2: What can we say? Yeah. We can say it's bloody bloody dreadful. Yes, we can. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we don't hold much hope for them. In Mm. fact, the Labor Party, and there was another story this week that there's certain, in fact, some business groups are asking Labor to push for what they're calling a bolder climate change policy because Labor's tossing up whether it should go too far so it can become a target on climate change for the government when I would have thought the population is so light years ahead of the government on this that uh, the people would want someone to come out and take a very strong stand other than the parties who can't win government but who, like the Greens, who have a pretty good policy but they, they're not going to, they might end up holding the balance of power of course but anyway, um, but they seem to be, Labour Party seems to be totally gutless on the whole thing. Karina's here. Karina, I've got a cup of tea poured for you. Do you want to mm-hmm. grab it? Yeah, I poured one for you. There you are. I've
3: been next door eating cocoa pops like oh. a five-year-old. Oh, right. <laughs> well, this is a little bit more sophisticated.
2: This is Japanese green tea today, so there you are. Um, now, also an interesting item in the last couple of days, the Yarra Council is going to be overseen by a, by a state government person, a municipal monitor. Uh, because they've been unable apparently to reach conclusions on lots of things because one Greens councillor is away over another matter. And um, so it's just uh, interesting to follow that one up because it seems, and I know Stephen Jolly, the socialist component there, said that this is quite unnecessary, but... uh, he said the socialist and independent councillors are quite capable of holding the Greens-dominated council for its errors. But um, anyway, that's, that's happening in local government. And the other local government thing this week, of course, is the, the move to change the name of Moreland Council, because it was discovered, I think people have known for a long time, but um, it's become official that Moreland is based on a, on a racist uh, background. And so they're going to, uh, and we mentioned last week, Mark Riley, a former presenter of this, had just become Mayor of Moreland, and I had dinner with him on Thursday night last week and he spent the whole day on this issue, but uh, they're going to find a, a suitable name, presumably a local Indigenous name for the council, but it's just interesting, two councils there, the um, Moreland and, and, Green, and Yarra Council, one being taken over. Uh, because it seems to be, like, well, according to the state government, it's it's out of control. But I'm not sure if that's true or not. We might find out. And the other one, Morland, which quite properly is changing its name because it's discovered it's got a quite racist background. I suppose if you, as everything goes to ground, I suppose if you um, if you look at a lot of places, a lot of names around the place, of course, like even within that, even within um, even within. The boundaries of Moorland you've got you've got places like Batman and, and Faulkner, which are, are based on people who are you know, quite racist in the background. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Karina. Karina's done a great job picking up the mess I just created in the studio. <laughs> okay, thank you. By the way, did you have anything, Zeb? you wanted to lean on about this morning?
1: Well, there was a bit of news um, about forests this week. Um, there was some breaking news about... Uh, the fact that the Victorian um, government's like Vic forests claims that they grow back native forests that they log but in actual fact um, only one in three logged uh, one in three logged areas fail to grow back um, so people have been talking about that and there's also we also got a media release from um, from King Lake Friends of the forest about their super Supreme Court case with Vic Forest, and that's over threatened species um, and the fact that Vic Forest um, it has admitted that surveying is recommended um, by the expert wist- witness um, was is like beyond their capacity, so they don't actually do the recommended um, surveying, which isn't very surprising. But it's also they've come out and. You know, said that they basically can't do what they need to do um, to make sure that they're not logging in areas with threatened species. So, yeah, a couple of different news items about big forests not being great. And
2: it's 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 almost the way they use the title Vic forest." You get the impression this is a state body that's supposed to protect and look after forests, but in fact, its job is to chop them down. Yeah, the opposite. Um, and, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's 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 again another, another disgrace. Uh, speaking of, um, of of power and things earlier, we um, a report came out last week from the Australian Energy Market Commission that showed power bills for the average Victorian household will fall by a hundred dollars over the next three years, and they they say. The, it's due to the fact that um, it's due to the fact that they've now got got so much renewable energy in the system. so renewable energy in the system is forcing prices down. Now this is contrary to what the government's been saying. of course Angus Taylor and company the minister have been telling us that renewable energy, is going to put prices up. It needs subsidies and it prices will go through the roof because we're going to have renewables and we need reliable coal power to, to have cheap electricity. Now, this shows that, in fact, the reason for the, for the plummeting prices will be renewable energy, the amount in the system. But guess what? Immediately, Angus Taylor came out and took credit for it.
4: <laughs> he,
2: he, the, he said the government was responsible for this, this, this wonderful dropping of lowering of business. Well, anyway, there you are. So... So uh, Angus is Angus is the the champion, and just before just before we do go to uh, to Debbie uh, Carruthers, I'll just read that yesterday. I thought they were so nicely juxtaposed on opposite pages, facing pages, left and right hand pages in yesterday's Financial Review. Again, uh, one headline: Company profits up as wages fall. Doesn't that say it all? Yep. <laughs> and that's. Um, that's great because it's great for all of us if we, go, if we don't get if we get less money we're better off apparently um and the other side of that page the the right hand page the headline militant union must pay 2.2 million over strike and the mua was fined 2.2 million plus other costs in terms of legal costs and everything okay. else over a strike in 2017 and it struck because uh, it's cube and patrick's the usual suspects down at the waterfront Um, Employers, but they in fact put up, they they set up a particular section of the wharf, which was non-union and no union members there at all. And the union took the union took action, and the belief that they were trying to de-unionise, which probably true, the whole the whole wharf, and yet the judge said, in his judgment, that. They, they should use their members' money to do the work that unions should do. And I thought, well, that is the work that unions should do. They just got fined $2.2 million by him for doing exactly what unions should do, yeah. which is trying to save jobs and, uh, and protect the, the wages and conditions of their members. Anyway, that's that. So on that note, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we're going to talk to Debbie Carruthers about a success story on City Limits. Good heavens.
1: Yeah. Kofiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofiyas and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours we your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot org.au A 3CR supporter.
5: Typical of a man in the Western system, like hello, you know. All stories might may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day you can't compare that to the First Fleet, because Invasion Day was the start of a dispossession, murder, massacres, and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So. Scott Morrison, if he really wants to leave this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust, you know? So I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like, Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377.
1: off the national weekend of action against AUKUS, get down to the State Library on Friday the 10th of December for International Human Rights Day, calling for human rights and not another military pact.
2: The AUKUS pact seeks to tie Australia into a forever partnership with the US and UK, involving military, education, resource extraction, technology development, manufacturing. War is the antithesis of human rights wreaking environmental destruction that not only endangers First Nations communities on the front lines, but generations of our children to come.
1: Come and take back the streets with music, performance and speeches with MC Tom Ballard, Scott Ludlam, Liz Turner, 3CR's Jacob Gregg, Combat Wombat and the Solidarity Sound System. Join us on Friday, December 10th at the State Library at 5.15pm and visit renegadeactivist.org for more information.
4: A 3CR supporter.
2: Okay, we're back on 3CR and we've got uh, back on city limits. In fact, um, we've got Debbie Carabas on the line. Debbie is um, one of the people who was involved in the campaign against Mineral Sands proposal down in East Gippsland. We talked to Debbie about a year or so ago, uh, perhaps about a year ago, um, at the early stages of the EES process about the damage it would cause. But, Deb... Uh, incredible! Twice in a year, we had Hastings in the last twelve months, and now this one, where EES processes have actually rejected a proposal by a developer. It's unheard of, but a, but a great result. Yes, it's fantastic, and
3: it's so exciting. We we thought after this period of time, um, and and also because. I believe there's only been three EESs that have been stopped in a period over 20 years. So it's a long period of time to have only had three EESs stopped and only one of those was also a a mine. So we felt extremely strongly that the environmental effects should have been considered as being unacceptable and we were very relieved to have that decision, but it's because of the the fact that uh, so few of them had been stopped, we thought
2: that the odds were were, um, were really against us. Yeah, and of course the Minister said, um, the, who finally gave the decision last week, he, he said the, the, if approved it would significantly affect wildlife, vegetation, air quality, agriculture, horticulture and, um, and water downstream as well. Um, so there's a lot of bloody environment being affected by it.
3: Uh, a huge number, and then on top of that, it was also recognised that there were there are a large number of people who live near the mine project, and that would have unacceptable consequences for those people in terms of air quality, um, noise, and um, another important aspect that was recognised in relation to people is the fact that there is very strong community opposition to, to the project and that was specifically mentioned um, in, in, in that report um, and it was described as, and I quote, unusual and a testament to the depth of feelings in the community um, against the, the project. So that was very, uh, very significant as well.
2: And, of course, the East Gippsland Shire Council came out against it as well. Uh, the, around the area, of course, there's two areas. There was the, there's waterways which flow into lakes entrance, which could have caused great damage, but also immediately adjacent to this, there's lots of, um, of food-growing farms, are there not?
3: Yes, well, a major food bowl for Victoria, that's valued at over $150 million annually, the horticultural industry in the Lindon Valley, which provides... Um, uh, fresh vegetables and what's significant about that area is that at certain times of the year the country can only get um, leafy green vegetables from this part of the country because the climate's not suitable elsewhere in Australia. So it's a, it's a very significant industry and it's immediately downwind and um, on the other side of the Mitchell River from where the, the mine was uh, proposed to be located. And when the mining company talks about the potential for 200 jobs, the horticulture industry employs up to 2,000 people, um, and
6: uh, there's a risk
3: of those jobs being threatened, as well as jobs for the tourism industry. And the tourism industry relies very heavily on, on the Gippsland Lakes, and the mine w- was going to be immediately above um, only at 350 metres away from the Mitchell River, which is a, a major river that feeds into the, the Gippsland Lakes. And it's also the same river that's used to irrigate the crops that are in that uh, horticultural industry in the Lindenoe Valley. So very significant risk to those injuries, not only in terms of the money that those industries generate um, and, and also the jobs that those industries generate, and the risk of reputation of harm to those industries was immense. In fact, The government um, in 2019 exempted the horticultural industry from mining and minerals exploration and recognizing the value of, of that land, and therefore it made sense for the government to then say, well, we can't risk that area uh, when we've exempted it from exploration. We can't um, risk that uh, industry being threatened.
2: What what was this? What sort of pollution would have got into um, into the into the environment generally, into the water, into the um, into people's lives? Uh,
3: yeah. So the, this mineral sands mine proposal is different to many other mineral sands mines in the country. Uh, one one of the critical things is the depth um, that, that they were mining would be mining down to up to 50 meters, and then the, the, the crushing of the materials. There's a lot of uranium underground, and when it's underground, it's safe. And when you bring it up to the surface and crush it and and, um, and uh, uh, process it, there's um, risks of, of, of toxic um, dust from the from the uranium. Um, but the the thing about this mine that was different is that they that Kalbar was proposing to keep the monazite, which contains uranium and thorium. And uh, and that was going to be in what's referred to as a heavy mineral concentrate. So that's what's processed once they, they process the, um, the ore on the sand. And that was going to be sitting in stockpiles uh, above ground. And they're talking about putting tarps on it. But when you're talking about a long distance and putting tarps over it, then... That area is subject to heavy rainfall and very strong winds, and that's just an accident waiting to happen with the Mitchell River directly below. The other aspect that was very concerning about the project and happened quite late in the process was that the mine, um Kalbar was proposing to um, install, if you can believe it, 20 catchments, 19 of them were catchment dams. One of them was a freshwater dam of of, uh, of major um, major size, and... If there was a failure of any of those dams through flooding events, that, that contaminated uh, water and and soil sediment would have cascaded down into the Mitchell River and across onto the veggie fields. So there's that aspect as well as the dust um, from, from the mining process, which had toxic elements in it, and cancer-causing substances being uh, very fine dust that would be breathed by people living nearby and there's also a school nearby so kids are out in the playground um they've got their hands in the soil and they put that in their mouths as people know and they, they would then be ingesting it as well as inhaling it um, which is very dangerous and that was recognized mm. um, by the by the report
2: and these these um these campaigns, of course, take a lot out of you, and it not just a year you've been finding and it's been much longer overall. Yeah, seven uh, but years. Seven years, yeah, seven that's seven, right. And and in terms of community, it, it it takes a hell of a lot for a community against a big company that's got bottomless pockets and can hire the best silks, etc., um, yeah. and the best people. You know, the, the people to give them the the so-called reports that say everything's going to be safe um it it takes a lot out of a community and a lot in both in money in in fundraising, in campaigning it's it's a tough job.
3: it was It was huge, and we were so very grateful for um, assistance that we received from environmental justice Australia. Most of their legal support over that period of time was done pro bono. There was a a government grant that was uh, provided for the first time with these EES processes that that um, provided uh, $40,000 to fund legal costs only. That was just for legal costs. Now, um, the the costs in EJA were well in excess of that, but that they provided pro bono. They also found us a barrister, um, Ms. Emily Porter, who was absolutely outstanding. She did an amazing job at the hearing. Um, the hearing went for 10 weeks, um, and she she represented us also on a pro bono basis because she came, she saw the area, and she recognised that this pro- that um, project should never have been um, found acceptable from an environmental standpoint. So in recognising that, she did that work for us pro bono, which was absolutely outstanding. Mm-hmm. The community had to raise funds to pay for experts because that wasn't covered by the government funding and so we were very lucky that a number of the experts um, represented us at much reduced costs um, and as a result of that that meant that the fundraising from the community standpoint wasn't as large as, as what it what it should have been so I uh, there was lots of community support um, and funding fundraising opportunities that people in the community contributed to and knowing that, the mine needed to be stopped at all
2: so I bet there's been lots of celebrations since Debbie it's been it's a great victory
3: uh, well the, the only thing at this point in time is that we're still waiting for the outcome from the government department so although the Minister for Planning has said that the mine the environmental impacts from the mine are unacceptable it's been over to the other government agencies such as the EPA Earth Resources Regulation which uh, issues the mining License in um, the Commonwealth Government has responsibilities under the EPBC legislation, um, and then Council too. In terms of the, um, uh, um, uh, it has separate authorities, and also Delp has responsibilities under the um, under a Planning Scheme Amendment. Now, Delf, of course, we expect that would that would not be be progressed because that that's the same department as the Minister for Planning, and mm. they wouldn't be going against their own. Um, Minister's decision. So there are other um, government agencies that still need to review the minister's assessment. Um, but um, in the report, there are 43 um, reports um, that are indicated for Calbar that would have to, would have to address all of those <laughs> all of those issues, which are quite significant. It was never proven that there was groundwater. Um, the bore that they were um, doing tests from. There was no groundwater, um, which was uh, part of their um, requirement to have a mine. You need to have water. Um, and so there's a whole range of things that need to be addressed. So I would think at this point it is very unlikely that those other government agencies are going to, to say that the environmental um, effects are such that they would, given that they were proven to be unacceptable, that the government agencies would, would proceed. But until they act... until the, The Minister for Resources actually says we're not going to grant a mining licence. We still have to really wait for that outcome, but we'd be very confident that the the other departments will follow suit from the Minister for Planning Support.
2: Okay, it's uh, celebrations with reservations, but um, anyway, let's hope uh, the reservations have come to come to pass, and uh, and you have a full celebration very shortly. Debbie, it's a great victory nonetheless, and uh, thanks for well, thanks for coming to coming on the show today, but also uh, thanks to you for all the work people have put in down there for the, to make sure this happened. Thanks very much for your
3: time. Really okay. appreciate right
2: it. Radio, Debbie. Thanks a lot. Thanks,
3: Kevin. Bye. Debbie others
2: there, who's. Um, with that group down there fighting those that's what would have been a disaster and let's hope that they those, uh, let's hope it doesn't from here reverse and someone says he can have it but I don't think they will, I think it's okay oh, that's my feeling um, Okay, look, we're going to go to John McPherson after this break and have Transport, but well, during the break I, you have things like Rodgers and Hammerstein you have things like Rodgers and Hart you have uh, Lerner and Lowe you have these musical comedy groups who where the lyricist and the composer are both named. But in West Side Story, it's amazing that people mostly think of just Leonard Bernstein, but in fact, the lyricist, of course, in that was Stephen Sondheim, who died this week. And so just as a tribute to him, because most people are playing things like, uh, like um, Send in the Clowns with Little Night Music as a tribute to him, but we're going to play one of my favourite songs from West Side Story just as a tribute to Stephen Sondheim while we get John on the line.
4: You are
1: listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio.
6: It'd make them cannonballing down through the sky gleaming its eye bright as a rose. Who knows? It's only just out of reach down the block on a beach under a tree. I got a feeling there's a miracle due Gonna come through Coming to me Could it be? Yes, it could Something's coming, something good If I can wait Something's coming I don't know what it is But it is gonna be great With a click, with a shock Phone'll jingle, door'll knock Open the latch, something's coming, don't know when, but it's soon. Catch the moon, one-handed catch. Around the corner, or whistling down the river, come on, deliver. by holding still it'll be there come on something come on in don't be shy meet a guy pull up a chair the air is humming and something great is coming Out of reach, down the block on a beach Maybe tonight Maybe tonight Maybe tonight
2: OK, we're back on city limits, and uh, something's coming, but um, John McPherson, our transport commentator, monthly transport commentator. John, um, something's coming, but at Newport the last day or two, it obviously wasn't trains. Another problem no, in the no, system?
4: No, no.
0: Um, I just just to comment on that song, it sounded... I mean, I love I love sometime. He's the only one of the really... The... the, 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 the um, uh, writers, composers that I really, really adore from the um, American um, musical theatre tradition. I think a lot of it, I find a lot of it really really hard to cope with, but not sometimes. Mm, no. He's great. And that particular song, you know, it sounds a bit railway-like, you know, something's <laughs> coming down the la- line, you know. Something's
4: yeah,
1: coming, yeah um, transport right. appropriate.
2: It's only yeah, just out of reach yeah. on that, <laughs> our transport system. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there we go. Ah oh dear, well he, he was a great age, so he did he had a yeah. I imagine had him mostly a marvellous life. I hope ninety
2: one or ninety two when he died. Yeah, right? yeah. And yeah. John, but at that point though the the yeah. trains packed up again apparently. Um,
0: yes, yes, yes. The good old Newport area seems to be a particular a particular uh, problem with the um, rail system. I reckon that there are so many. Incident, no incidents, well they're more than incidents I mean things fall apart, it seems to be the signalling system falls apart and they can't then run trains through there therefore the trains stop they say oh yes we're getting your buses and then, you know maybe the buses turn up an hour later and then of course the buses provide a much slower trip and the whole thing's just a nightmare and of course that puts people off and they think to themselves gee I could have done that in my Car that trip, and um, they are lost. A lost to the public transport system.
2: Yeah. Is it more prevalent in those western working class suburbs, or is it across the board? Uh, it,
0: I, I, I think list, just list, this is not really this isn't scientific, but listening to the um, reports, you know, the travel information that you hear on uh, you know local radio, um, it seems to me to be more prevalent. Particularly around that Newport area, uh, but it also happens at the other junctions like um, Caulfield, you know, where the, where the Frankston line diverts from the line mm. going down towards Gippsland, and also out um, out of Ro- Ringwood as well. So it, it seems to me there's some issues, particularly around the areas where the uh, where the you know the the system's more complicated, there are junctions, and you know got to have special signaling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you just wonder whether those areas have ever been upgraded to modern modern standards or whether they're still struggling to make fifty year old signalling keep working.
2: Mm-hmm. And does this come back to that problem between who's responsible, the state government or the or the private? Um, contractor who runs yeah, the system. That's, yeah,
0: that's that's certainly part of it. But I think by now we should have realised that um, the only people who are going to spend any big money is going to be the state government. The, uh, the operators are, are going to maybe patch things up a bit to keep them running for you know for their uh, you know to, for them to get decent um, performance statistics. But that's that's all, and even that doesn't seem to happen because these same you know, apparent. Apparently, faults keep happening in these same areas. So you've got all this sort of stuff continuing to go on. And of course, it happens near the city as well. You know, you can hear hear them say something's gone wrong. You know, at, at Richmond or on the Loop or at North Melbourne. You know, you hear these things quite often. Um, and so, you know, we have the, the government not. Particularly concerned, apparently, about this stuff. As long as, as long as they're putting the operators under some pressure to meet their um, performance and requirements, um, everybody seems to shrug their shoulders uh, and yeah. go on and build the next, the next, um, you know, big, big, bright, beautiful thing. You
2: it's know? going to come to that. There's 50 million, of course, is a minimum in terms of what it's going to cost in the end. This um, this loop around the city um this this suburban loop they're talking about uh, but that's a lot of money that um could be used to make sure the current system works properly first
4: well
0: yeah i i i just um am a bit bewildered that they they are prepared to leave the um the current system in a fairly ramshackle condition uh certainly you know compared with what high quality metro systems would expect like say um you know the suburban system around Tokyo um, where all the the equipment that matters for for signaling and diverting trains onto other routes all that stuff is is double double doubled up you know there's another set of equipment managing ready to take over instantaneously if if something fails because they are so concerned about keeping everything running um, at a hundred percent all of the time. Uh, that's a, that's such a far cry from what we seem to have to put up with here.
2: Yeah, it's uh, well we we've been talking about this for a long, long time, but nothing are, seems to be happening to um, to address it. Unfortunately, but...
4: no,
0: we keep on banging on about this stuff, and you know, it's such a it's it, it you know the, the question is well, well should we be going on to build these? Um, other big projects um, you know you've got the Melbourne Metro rail tunnel, uh, and that's that's going to have beautiful um, state of the art signaling and they're going to put state of the art signaling on some tracks that, that that will that will feed trains into that, um, which apparently is going to be uh, trains from Bunbury and um, airport uh, from the west uh and uh, trains from uh yeah I think there'll be trains from um, um, Frankston and um and Packenham airlines in the in the east. Or well, maybe maybe they'll just be um Pakenham line trains and um uh trains from down the um Cran- Cranbourne line. I think they're the main ones, yeah. <clears throat> and that'll be nice, but it'll still leave a lot of the system you know, in its current,
2: you know, ramshackle condition. Yeah, um, and as we say, the the level crossing the level crossing removal project is essentially to make cars move faster anyway, rather than public transport. But um, yeah, they, well,
4: that's
0: right. They, they opened uh, five
2: more at the weekend. Um, they've now got over fifty done. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, the well I mean, line. It,
0: is, it is magnificent, but then, you, you know, the, the, there was never any. At least any public study that indicated which one, you know, what what needed to be done most urgently. Um, and, and, but you know, admittedly, with the um, with the with the level crossing removals, you also um, remove, um, you, you know, you, you get a new bit of railway line and you get a new station quite often, or even a number of new stations, and that's good, um, but. I don't know. There's still no no public, um, you know, indication of what's um, if what's being done is the most important important things to be done.
4: Yeah,
1: I liked what you said. Um, maybe it was last time uh, as well about the level crossing removal actually being quite a lot to do with cars and um, giving oh, cars yeah. more freedom of movement <laughs> rather oh, yeah. than trains.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, it means that uh, in peak hour. Again there are people who suddenly their, uh, their their journey to work by car becomes easier because they don't have to uh, get held up at a level crossing yeah uh, so it, so yeah in many ways in most ways it's, it's all about cars uh, but for, for a government for a government of course it, it's brilliant because they can argue that everybody benefits from it uh, and you know a huge amount of money is now being spent spent on it. Uh, many billions. Uh, and I think many of those projects have cost a lot more than they were predicted to cost. And uh, and the government's still steaming, steaming ahead with it. Um, but at the moment, I mean, all governments seem to be off the leash as far as spending money goes. Nobody seems to mind how much, how much they spend. But, of course, we don't know... We still don't know what's going to happen um, with uh, Journey to Work are people going to go back to working in the cbd as much as they did in the past or are you know many people going to continue to work from home or are they going to work from suburban hubs you know all those sort of th- questions haven't been worked out so it may be that the pressure on the trans- on on the public transport system may never be as great or not for a very long time as great as it was before the before the covid
2: yeah, and John, um, also there's been this week um, an issue around bus stops and um, a group called Victoria Walks uh, have done a report showing that a lot of bus stops are in very dangerous spots and they quote one near Coburg High School on Bell Street right. and say it's absolute danger for students to um, um, with these bus stops and the sort of accidents waiting to happen um, that bus stops on... The bus stops on busy roads um, can be in unsafe places. Um, comment on that, have you thought? Any comment on
0: well, that? Well, bus stops are, are, are even more neglected than tram stops, of course, across Melbourne. Um, and we know, we know that there are so many tram stops. I think it's only, is it only 15 or 20% of tram, tram stops have been improved for, the, for use by people with disabilities. Uh, e g level boarding between the stop and the uh, and the vehicle mm. and the situation for buses of course is even worse i mean bus stops can be just a a pole in the ground with a little sign on top and that's it no no shelter no uh, no seat no light no nothing um uh, that can be that's quite common on many suburban uh, bus bus routes and of course, you you do need to you do want to have the bus stop near an intersection, because the intersections are where people can approach the bus stop from most angles. From most, you know, they can they can come up a side street, or they can cross over the uh, cross over the main road that that the bus stop bus routes on uh, to get to the stop most conveniently. Um, but um, the, the stops can be, you know. As I said, not not even a concrete pad to provide a stable uh, a stable place to stand. It can can be literally just a pole, a pole. So you know there is an issue of uh, of uh, putting the bus stops, you know, in the most convenient place for users, or as mostly happens, they're put in the most convenient place for the uh, for the bus itself. And the Users can, um, and of can course, get many are, anyway
2: not many, but in a lot of places they could be a spot where you're going to have modal interchange, where a tram or another mm. bus or something crosses, and you can change over. So
0: exactly, so that's
2: that's, that's another argument why it ought to be near the near two right. stops should be close together anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right, and uh, and and that 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 becomes a problem. Uh, yeah, where where the where the the pressure's on for very you know for various various things to happen. And of course again, because most buses are so infrequent uh, people are going to be tempted to run for the bus if they get off another bus or get off another tram and see the bus there because they know that because of the poor frequency of buses in Melbourne on the whole if they miss that, the bus they can see, they'll be waiting a long time for another bus. So all those things all those things, um, add to the um, the difficulty with stops. But I might have missed some, some important point that these people were making.
2: Right? The, the yeah, yeah. Well, they, well, yeah, they, they say that it's, um, it's dangerous for school kids. This is one from that school. But the, this particular mob, um, yeah. the Victoria Walks report says disabled or elderly pa- passengers were also unable to safely catch the bus and more than a third yeah. of stops did not have ramps within 50 metres. Um, and bus passengers were likely to be students, casual workers earning less yeah. than a 300 a week and without a driver's licence, two yeah. in five of the surveyed stops were on roads where people would have to cross uh, several, lines of tra- several lanes of traffic and where traffic lights were in an inconvenient place. So there's those sort of issues. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, it's um, this. There's, there's plenty wrong with bus stops that <coughs> have never been reassessed. You know, They may not have been reassessed in... Twenty or thirty years, sometimes. Um, and, and, well, it's the same, I'm afraid, with the actual services. There are so many bus services in in the outer suburbs, where the, the frequency is very low, and the bus route that the, that the you know that's served is is complicated, and um, and and you know patronage can be incredibly low on some of these services. Um, and yet they, they keep running year after year after year, uh, just because they've always run. You know, it's it's um, it's it's it's, um, it's a it's a you know that's a Melbourne specialty the very poorly poorly um, used bus service that keeps running for you know the next twenty years and nothing nothing happens to um, to to fix. Fix any 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 part of the the um, service, you know the, mm. the.
2: Like running them more than twice an hour or something, which might. Yeah,
0: help. well, well, of course there are buses that run, you know, run even less than once an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, the world which you know makes them makes them for most people close to unusable, but they still run year after year after year. They're not fixed in any way.
1: Yeah, and uh, they also like. Uh, Often they're running late, but sometimes they're actually running early, and you can get to the bus stop at the time that it says the bus is going to be there, and it's actually already been, and you think you only have to wait for it uh, a few minutes because it's a few minutes late, but actually it's (laughs) it's gone.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Well, they were allowed to run a certain amount early, which you know is, I think, fairly fairly ridiculous. Uh, because at least you should be able to, you know, expect to be able to catch your bus if you're there at the time that the timetable specifies.
2: Oh, John, that'd be silly. <laughs> 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 so Melbourne you know, public. I mean, if you, if
0: you look at it logically, to, <laughs> you know, to, to, to run the bus early on a, on a route with poor service and then and then think the person will be quite happy to sit down for the next, uh, you know, 40 minutes or something. Until the next bus arrives, um, you know. In, 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 you know that logically, that's just, you know, yeah. that's insane. Almost. And
2: there are certain points on the route where they tend to stop because obviously they're catching up with the timetables. Yes. So it means that if the, the stops in between, they've been running early. That's the you know, yes. that point. That's yeah.
0: right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's. Hmm. Um, I mean, it, it, apparently it's too much to expect the drivers to leave leave each stop, you know, no earlier than the time specified. Apparently,
2: that's too hard. There's also a report come out of um, three universities, like Trove, Monash and RMIT, working together, um, about safety for women in particular on the public transport system, and they're quite concerned about it. Um, And, uh, in fact... um, they say women want to be able to report harassment and assaults in real time so that more perpetrators are caught, but mm-hmm. there's no staff to report to in many cases since they've you know, cut staff back dramatically on the, on sure. the system. Sure. And one woman, in fact, said that she discovered that a bloke had been following her from a workplace and she reported it, but um, that he was staring at her on the system. But she got so frightened, she went and bought a car. So that's someone who's lost to public transport. Um,
0: yeah, well, there you go. Um, that that's, that's
2: the sort of well, thing. Zed might be better to talk on this one actually because yeah, um, big transport.
1: Yeah, well, I feel like we probably should have even uh, given a content warning before that, but it's certainly a well, problem.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. perhaps we should have. Yeah, you're right. But anyway,
0: um, there was a fascinating series of programs on SBS recently looking at the Sydney rail system, the suburban rail system, uh, from an operational point of view, and they they have this amazing large um, rail operations centre where they, um, in in the one room, they look at hundreds and hundreds of CCTV screens which um, cover every, every station on the system. They, incidentally, have a lot more staff on, on stations than we do, to, just to start with. But they also have this overview from the rail operations centre and um, they can... Get a report from somebody saying there's somebody you know behaving badly on a train or a station and they can zoom in pretty much straight away and and find them on the system and they seem to have a relationship with the police at least that's what happened in the program it might not happen in reality so much to take it um get get um, police to the rail station to uh try and apprehend somebody very fast. It it seemed to me to be a much more um, uh, well-run, real-organised surveillance system than anything we've got. I'm sure if we had something like the Rail Operations Centre, we'd know about it, because the government would be promoting it. Uh, So, yeah, there you go. That's what that's what the better better systems do and of course their system is much more heavily used too so you're you're more likely to be on a train uh with other passengers even you know even late at night say uh whereas you know melbourne trains of course can be very quiet at those times particularly at the moment and uh, that means that women can feel more more exposed more threatened so there you go, there's, there's, there are examples of doing, doing surveillance well, even if you don't like calling it surveillance.
2: You know, after you recommended it last time you were on here, I, I actually watched that program from then on, and it was quite a good program. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, but, John, we're down to the last couple of minutes of yeah. the year, in fact, so um, oh, well. a bit of a summary, cause we're, um, and thanks, by the way, for all your time again this year. We've, we've had it, It's been under difficulties, a lot of it's been pre-recorded, yeah. etc., but... Yeah. Um, another year of public transport have we come anywhere?
0: Uh, well, we've we, we've got we've got a government that likes its big projects, as, as I've often pointed out, and uh, they've been you know hammering along. The Melbourne Rail Tunnel construction seems to be going gangbusters, uh, but of course, alongside that, you've got the Melbourne. Uh, uh, rail, you know, the, sorry, not the rail, the road, the road tunnel thing that's going to Im- increase the capacity for bringing traffic in from the west. Um, and that's 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 going to, of course, encourage people to commute more from the west by uh, by cars and by train. And of course, even at the moment, you know, m- massive numbers of commuters do come in by road. So we, we're not... I don't think we're really doing much to change the balance, balance really between road and rail. Um, and we've been in this sort of funny state where, where because of the virus uh, patronage has been really low because of lockdowns, etc., etc. So we just don't really know even what the future holds for public transport patronage. But we still have the issue that once you get beyond the rail or the, or the tram system, the bus system, you know, continues to be in many ways pathetic, uh, and it's no wonder that people in the outer suburbs, you know, get back in their get back in their car all the time if they've tried public transport.
2: Well, that's good because we had a, a good a good news story to start off with, so it's nice to finish on a bad news story, <laughs> it? <laughs> it's city limits for you.
0: Sorry about that. It just it just seems like the polys... The police just don't see any uh, any virtue from their point of view
2: in improving the bus system. Yeah, OK. Look, John, thanks for your time this year again, and we're, okay. we're done. Ne- next week, of course, is our Energy Week, but we're also going to be talking um, next week. We mentioned a few weeks ago the the riots, virtually riots, the street riots in Germany, and people trying to take back uh, housing that was public housing and given over to the public sector, and they voted to take it back into, private, into public hands. And um, Dr Kate Shaw up at Melbourne University has, um, has been to Germany and she's quite a, quite up to date with what's happening there. And we're going to talk to her about that issue on City Limits next week. So that's it. Zeb, say goodbye and thank, you. thank yourself for doing a great job. Yeah. Say thank you, Zeb.
1: <laughs> no worries. I'm going to try and play another track on the CD to give myself practice at that. So get ready for some Lucky Dip Stephen Sondheim.
6: The most beautiful sound I ever heard